going with Jesus into Jerusalem for the Passover. We're going to put ourselves in the shoes of a people who were desperately hoping that Jesus would be the Jewish Messiah who would set them free from their enemies. And we're going to talk about how the people's experiences, their expectations of Jesus didn't match the reality of who Jesus was and how that contributed to the terrible events of the cross. And then finally, at the end, knowing how to make an entrance based on Jesus' example, we will go out into the world to be Christ's hands and feet together, a channel of God's grace. So let's start at the beginning of the story. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that is God's word for us today. And you know, one of the things that first occurred to me when I read that passage preparing for the message was, I had, there's a misconception that I had. I was surprised because I naturally assumed that the parade that is described in this passage took place just in the streets of Jerusalem. And it turns out that that's a common misconception that a lot of people have. In fact, uh, if you read the text closely, you find that it, it says that Jesus started in the vicinity of Bethany and Bethage, which is uh, around the Mount of Olives, which is right here in the center. And what they did was they, they took the donkey and they rode it all the way down to Jerusalem, which was uh, over there to the west. And so uh, Jesus takes this trip from Bethany and Bethage all the way to Jerusalem, which actually, um, you can't really tell, there's no dimensions on this map. It's not that long of a distance. Um, so it's not that long of a distance at all. But, you know, during that journey of, of traveling there, more and more people were, were joining the parade as people spread their cloaks in the road and waved palm branches around. We don't know how large the crowd was, but it was a significant enough event that it was reported in all four of the gospel accounts. This is the, the official beginning of the story of Jesus last week, the Passion Week in each of the Gospels. So it's an incredibly important event. Now, I read an interesting story in one of my commentaries um, when I was preparing the message, and uh, the author of the commentary uh, traveled to the Holy Land, and he was staying on, uh, in the Mount of Olives on the far side from the city of Jerusalem, and one day he was eating uh, lunch at a cafe. All of a sudden, um, he heard these shouts 
He heard shouting, and it scared him. He didn't know what was going on. His first thought was there was some kind of an attack, that there was some kind of violence that was going on um, just a little ways away. The waiter notices his expression and comes up to him and says, no, 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 don't, don't be afraid, and explain to him that what he was hearing wasn't the sound of commandos, but the sound of pilgrims who had just crossed the Mount of Olives and caught their very first glimpse of the city of Jerusalem. Let's get a picture of it up here. Now, this is a, this is a modern picture of the city of Jerusalem, uh, what, uh, what these pilgrims in the story might have seen. Uh, as you can see, this, so this is the east wall right here. Um, the reason I can tell it's the east wall is because this is where the temple uh, would have been standing if it hadn't been destroyed in A.D. 70. Um, this is the Dome on the Rock, the Muslim Dome on the Rock that was built on the original site of the temple. Um, so this is the east side, and, and imagine for a minute you're on the Mount of Olives. Imagine you're up there and you're seeing this for the very first time. Now, I mean, it's, it's pretty striking to see it on, on these images, but imagine being there in person. And it occurs to me that, you know, this custom of singing of shouting was something that carried from Jesus' day all the way to the modern day as well. I mean, it was custom for people as they came down the Mount of Olives on the east side for them to sing praises to God. And as they entered through the gates of the city to shout hallelujah to God's name. And so I tell you that story and I show you that picture to, to share with you a detail that's missing from Mark's account that we can find in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And it reads, Jesus was near the city and ready to go down the Mount of Olives. The many people who were following him began to sing with loud voices and give thanks for the powerful works they had seen. There's a reason why the people were singing. There's a reason why the people were shouting. They had seen how God worked in Jesus' life through the healings, through the miracles, and they wanted to catch a glimpse of this chosen one, of this Messiah that they had long hoped for. And that's the reason that we gather week after week, isn't it? It's because we've seen something incredible, something that we can't otherwise explain. We have a reason to gather here and worship God for who God is and also for what God has done for each and every one of us. Like Jesus himself and all the people that traveled with him on that very first Palm Sunday, the people were pilgrims. They were on a pilgrimage. And what is pil pilgrimage all about? Pilgrimage is a time of preparation. Pilgrimage is a time of preparation. You see, every step Jesus took was preparing him for what was to come. Every step he took was preparing him for that final week that he had in Jerusalem for the cross, and for what was to follow. Now, if we want to fully understand what's going on in the story, we have to ask several questions. And you know, whenever I get up here, I love to ask questions of the story. And the very first question that we're going to ask is simply this. Why a donkey? You know, why was Jesus riding on a donkey? I mean, first of all, he wasn't that far away. Like I said before, Bethage and Bethany wasn't Really, wasn't really that far from Jerusalem. He could have walked. That's what the rest of the crowd did. But he chose to ride a donkey. And I think the reason why that's important is that Jesus is often far more intentional than we give him credit for. 
that Jesus did it on purpose. And the reason why is because riding on a donkey was a symbolic act that went all the way back to King David. It went all the way back to King David, a symbolic act. But not only that, it was also a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, I'll explain a little bit about the donkey in a second, but I want to draw your attention to the 6th century prophet Zechariah, who wrote these words about Jerusalem's coming king. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. You see, what kings rode on, both in the time of King David and in Jesus' day, had a lot of significance. To ride on a donkey meant that you were coming in peace. And to ride on a horse meant that you were coming in war. So what that means is that the, what Zechariah was telling us through his prophecy is that the coming Messiah would be a Messiah that would usher in a kingdom of peace. And so let's set up a contrast for a minute. In Jesus' day, uh, the Roman Caesars, the rulers of the Roman Empire, would uh, have these processions. And at the head of the procession, the emperor would ride on his prancing stallion. And the procession itself would compose of his warriors, a number of people that his armies conquered that were bound in chains, and the goods that they had seized from the lands that they took. But Jesus, in complete and amazing contrast, comes at the riding on a lowly donkey at the head of a rabble of common people and fishermen, many of whom he healed, many of whom he set free from the power of darkness. It's an amazing contrast, but here's where things get a little bit, a little bit harder. Because you see, the people of Jerusalem who were awaiting the coming Messiah, they were expecting a different kind of Messiah. You see, the Jesus that they were expecting to come wasn't a Jesus riding on a donkey, but a Jesus riding on a horse. Because they wanted to see the Romans be defeated. They wanted to see their own kingdom reestablished on this earth. And what happened was Jesus arrived on the donkey. And yet the people overlooked this because they were so wrapped up in the moment. They were so excited to see the one whom God had sent to them. But that leads to our second question. What in the world did the crowd mean when they were shouting, Hosanna? What does the word Hosanna mean? Do any of you know? Can you call it out? That's right. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Save us now. <laughs> Save me now. <laughs> Excellent. So, so Hosanna means save us now. And, and it was actually originally a, a Hebrew word that was a cry for help, but it evolved into a word that was a shout of praise. And Though the crowd may have missed the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey, might have missed the significance that Jesus came to establish a kingdom of peace, they recognized him as the Lord's chosen one, as God's own representative, calling out to God, save us now, your representative is here, save us now, Hosanna. As a result, what they did next was they quoted Psalm 118, kind of like how we, when we're kind of in a high place, 
where we are wanting to praise God, we sing some of our favorite Christian tunes. Well, Psalm 118 was one of their favorite tunes, and this is what they said in Psalm 118, 26. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the feastal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now, perhaps you're wondering why the people were waving palm branches. Kind of a strange detail in the story. Well, it's not so strange if you're from a first century context. Because what a palm branch represents is it signifies God's victory. By waving them, the crowd was declaring the liberation of Israel. God, uh, that the crowd was calling for Jesus to liberate Israel, recognizing that God had answered their prayers and eagerly awaiting what it was Jesus was going to do next. And now, another detail in the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus and his group enters into the city of Jerusalem, the city stirred up with the acclaim that Jesus has. And this is an interesting detail because they weren't only identifying Jesus as God's own representative, but they were declaring that Jesus was going to establish the kingdom of David, of their father, David. And so many of you know who King David is. Um, for those of you who don't, David was uh, Jesus' most famous ancestor. He was probably the greatest king of Israel when they had their independence, when they had their own kingdom. And when David was a young boy, um, God called him a man after his own heart, which is something incredible. Imagine God speaking to you saying, you are a man or a woman after God's own heart. I mean, that's the highest praise that, that, that we can receive from God. And when David was a young boy, uh, he, his people, the Israelites, were in conflict with their neighbors, the Philistines. And what happened was every morning, the Israelite and the Philistine armies would come out, and they would square up against each other on the battlefield. But they wouldn't fight because the Philistines would send out their champion, who was named Goliath. This guy was over seven feet tall. He was huge, and nobody wanted to fight him, and yet he was mocking Israel. He was saying, send somebody out who will face me, and let's settle this. Let's see who the best nation is, whose God is stronger than the other. And so David gets this call to face down Goliath. He has confidence in God. And what he does is before he goes to face Goliath, he meets with the Israelite king at the time, King Saul. And what Saul does is something very interesting. Saul dresses David in his armor. He puts all of his armor on David, and he puts a sword in David's hand. And David takes a few steps with this armor on and with this sword in his hands. And then he, he hands the sword back, and he takes off all the pieces of armor. And he ends up going out into the battlefield with just the clothes on his back, a staff in his hand, a sling in his other hand, and a bag of stones on his belt. Now, this is important for this reason. You see, what makes David a man after God's own heart is the fact that he was true to who God created him to be. You see, he realized 
that if he went out to fight Goliath trying to be King Saul, that he would have been defeated and that his people would have been lost. He was true to who God created him to be. And this is what God wants for each of us, to be true to who God has created us to be. You know, this is why so many followed King David. That's why so many looked to Jesus in Jesus' day. As one in whom God was clearly working miracles and the descendant of David, the crowd was identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one for whom they were waiting, a man after God's own heart. But this was dangerous. This was dangerous because the crowd that came with Jesus into the city that day, that parade, wasn't the only parade that came to the city on that day. There were two other parades. You see, people were traveling to Jerusalem from all over Judea and Galilee. Some estimates say there were tens of thousands of people in the city. Other estimates say there were hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover, which was the celebration of God's liberation of, of Israel from Egypt as they crossed the Red Sea and came into the Promised Land. This is Israel's salvation story. And it's a significant story for the gospel story because what God is about to do is something that will free all people in all time from the power of sin and darkness. Let's go ahead and get a picture uh, up on the screen here. One of the other parades that occurred was uh, one led by Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time of uh, Jesus, at the time of this Passover. And you can see here kind of the route that they likely took into the city. And I say they because it wasn't just Pontius Pilate and a few other people. It was Pontius Pilate and a thousand Roman soldiers fully decked out in, in their armor with their weapons. Why do you think it was that Pilate arrived in the city with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the city at this time when they're celebrating the liberation of, of Israel from slavery in Egypt? Why do you think he came with thousands of troops? Right, he was trying to discourage, he was trying to discourage any notion whatsoever that the people would have an opportunity to rise up and throw off Roman oppression. And so what he did was he entered the city, probably from the west here, and he came up to the Antonia Fortress, which is right alongside the temple complex. And he had these soldiers with him in order to, uh, to dispel any notion of the people whatsoever that they would have an opportunity to celebrate the Passover in any way that would reenact their, uh, their release from Egypt. But that wasn't the only parade that came through the city. The other parade was Herod, King Herod Antipas, who came from the northwest, through, likely through the north gate. Now, King Herod was, the, uh, was, the, uh, was established by the Romans as the Jewish puppet king. He really didn't have a whole lot of power. Um, it was really the, the Romans that held the reins. But Herod came into the city at this time as well, and he was well-liked. He had his band of supporters. He had many people shouting his accolades at the same time. Now, looking at all these parade routes, these three different parades going on, I think it's important because we have to, we have to know that this activity caused quite a considerable stir in the city among the people who remembered the liberation of Israel from Egypt and longed for Jesus, for the Messiah, to do the same thing for them. 
and that Jesus arrived in the city with equal, if not higher, acclaim by the people who came with him, not only spelled trouble, but it spelled political trouble that eventually contributed to the Romans having Jesus crucified as king of the Jews. Now, to better immerse ourselves in the scene, let's put up a picture of what the first century Jerusalem might have looked like in Jesus' day. This is a, an imagining. It, it's a pretty striking image because it looks like, you know, they had a helicopter, you know, or something above the city and they took this picture. But, um, but you can see here, this is the east side of the city with the temple and the temple mount right there. Now, this structure over here, which you probably won't be able to see too well, but this is the Antonia Fortress I mentioned. So when Pilate came into the city with his supporters, he came all the way from the west, worked his way through the city, came alongside the temple wall here, and entered through into the Antonia Fortress. Uh, Herod Antipas came from the north and probably entered uh, somewhere around this gate and came all the way down to this part of the city. I think it was either this part or this section of the city that contained his palace. You see, these people um, didn't uh, go there often, but they had accommodations. So they had, Herod had a palace, and the fortress was where Pontius Pilate stayed. Now, let's bring up the map again of the different routes. So, again, we can see King Herod, Pontius Pilate. And now, you'll notice that Jesus, in this map and the one you saw before, Jesus kind of enters through the east. That's really, really significant for this story, and I'm going to explain why in just a moment. But first, we have to kind of contend with the fact that, well, how do we know he came in through the east? It doesn't explicitly say that in the text. But I think the Gospel of Mark gives us a clue. Now, at the end of the passage we read earlier, it mentions how Jesus and the crowd entered the gates of Jerusalem, and where do they go next? They went directly to the temple court. And as you can see again, if this is east, so north and east, the temple is right on the east. And so it makes sense that they went directly to the temple. It also makes sense because we know they were coming from the east because Bethany are east of the city. And so it just makes a lot of sense that that's where he came from. But if that's not enough to sell you on my theory... The East Gate figures prominently in Jewish Messianic prophecy. So let's put up a modern... Oh, it's already up. So here's a modern image of the Eastern Gate of Jerusalem today. What do you notice about it? It's not just closed, it's completely sealed. Like nobody's getting through there. And so very interesting, right? So why is that? The reason why is this. In the 14th century A.D., I know we're jumping all around time here. In the 14th century AD, there was a, um, there was a lot of changing of hands of Jerusalem um, in, in the centuries that followed Christ. Jerusalem was controlled by Christians, then Muslims, then Christians, then Muslims again. And this was the Ottoman Turkish uh, emperor, um, Suleiman, um, who ordered the gates of Jerusalem, the east gate specifically, to be sealed. And the reason that he did that was he believed a rumor that the Messiah would be returning soon and that he would pass through the East Gate. Now, according to a, a vision from the prophet Ezekiel, uh, written around the time of the exile to Babylon, the glory of the Lord will pass through the East Gate. And this is what it says in chapter 43. I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. 
So the Turkish leader consulted Jewish rabbis, and he found out that the Jewish Messiah would return through the East Gate and liberate the city from foreign control. And to prevent this from happening, he not only sealed the gate, but he also, you, you can kind of see it in the foreground here, he also planted a Muslim cemetery at the foot of this gate. You can kind of see the, the grave markers there. Now, this was a very deliberate move that he made because he believed that a holy man would not defile himself by walking through a cemetery. But ironically, this only fulfilled prophecy because we find out in chapter 44 of Ezekiel these words. The, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, here's the important part, the God of Israel has entered, entered through it. Past tense. So here's what's interesting about this. Though the prophecy speaks of end times, it also refers to the glory of God as if it has as if the glory of God has already passed through the gate. And thanks to the Gospel of John, we know that Jesus has been identified as God in the flesh. And so the glory of the Lord has passed through the gate on that very first Palm Sunday that we're celebrating today. And really the joke's kind of on this Turkish leader who closed the gate about 1,500 years too late. And isn't that, isn't that just... Uh, you know, it, it's consistent. You know, people had expectations of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah was to be in Jesus' day. And it's no different 1,500 years later. It's no different 2,000 years later. We each have those expectations. But when Christ returns in the future, I very much doubt a wall of stones or a cemetery is going to stop him from entering the city. You know, when it comes to stones and when it comes to graves, he's been there and he's done that. The good news here that Palm Sunday teaches us is that nothing can stop Christ from entering through the gates of our hearts. Nothing can stop that from happening. So I know I've taken you all around time. We've gone BC, we've gone AD. Let's bring us all back to first century Jerusalem for that first Palm Sunday. And as Jesus enters the city, I want you to imagine for a minute that you are part of the crowd. As you can imagine, the streets are really narrow and people have to kind of step aside in order to make room for Jesus and the crowd to pass through. In a moment, I would like you to hold up your palm crosses. Or if you don't have a palm cross, you can just hold up your hands or whatever other cross you have with you. And what I want you to do is in one voice speak the words that the crowd spoke that day because what we're doing in this moment is we're welcoming the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords through the gates of our hearts in a way that we won't soon forget. And so the scripture is up on the screen, and let's say it on three. One, two, three. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Again, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven heaven. What do you expect when Christ comes through the gates of your heart? You know, the people joining in God's praise that day got a lot right. They knew that God was working in an incredible way through Jesus. 
but there was a lot they got wrong as well. They expected a strong military leader who would come in and overthrow the Romans, somebody who would reestablish the earthly kingdom of Israel. They certainly didn't expect Jesus as the Messiah on the very next day to go into the temple courts to, to overturn the money uh, changers' tables and to challenge the Jewish religious establishments. They didn't expect that. Their expectations of the Messiah were unfulfilled. And it was, of course, less than five days later when some of the same people who shouted Hosanna on Sunday shouted crucify him on Thursday. The people's preconceived notions of the Messiah kept them from truly seeing who Jesus was and from participating in the victory that God came to give each and every one of us. Don't fall into that trap. Don't try to box God in with your own comfortable idea of who the Messiah should be for you. Every time we do this, we put Jesus to death in our hearts. Always remember that the same heart that shouts Hosanna in one moment is more than capable of shouting crucify him in the next. What we need is to know him. And if you want to know who Jesus really was and who he really is, you look no further than what he said at the beginning of his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. Let's check it out in the Gospel of Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, Jesus never said he was going to free the people from Roman rule. He never said he was going to reestablish an earthly kingdom. Instead, God was working salvation for us from the forces of sin and darkness in this world, the forces that are, go beyond what we can see, that drive a lot of the evil and the hate that we experience in this world. And if Jesus had been like that young man from the Schick commercial, Schick commercial then where would we be today. But instead, he was like his ancestor David, who refused to wear the armor of Saul. He stayed true to who God created him to be. And that caused G uh, people around him to ask this question, who is this? Who is this guy named Jesus? And this is the same question that we ask today and spend a lifetime answering. It's the same question that people will ask when they learn that you are a Christian. Who is this? Because they'll watch you to see what you do. Some already have an idea of what it means, and frankly, it isn't necessarily positive. But the good news is that when we recognize God for who he really is and accept Jesus as the humble servant in Isaiah's prophecy, the Holy Spirit will do a work in our lives and in our hearts so that the world would recognize Christ at work in us. Paul wrote this in his letter to the Romans. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The more we try to be like somebody else mirroring the culture, the less people will see Jesus working in us. 
Scripture teaches us that we must be in the world but not of the world, pointing to a greater reality that is yet to be. Only by allowing the Spirit of the Lord to renew our minds can God transform the preconceptions people have about us and create opportunity for grace to abound not only in our lives, but in the lives of all those who God has called us to minister to in this world. So a society tells you to ride in on a white stallion, ride in on a donkey. If society tells you to take control, be a humble servant. If society tells you to fear others who are different from you, embrace them with a love that overcomes hate. And if society teaches you to be a materialistic consumer, deny yourself and be a generous giver. That's what sets prisoners free. That's what opens the eyes of the blind. That's what liberates people held down by addiction, abuse, and idolatry. And that's what it means to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor wherever we go and in whatever we do. Did you know that the earthly ministry of Jesus continues today? It continues through those who have accepted the grace of Christ in their lives and who embrace the promise of eternal life that Jesus comes to give us. The good news of Palm Sunday is that we don't have to play by the world's rules. Jesus has shown us another way, the way of peace, and we are called to make an impression, an entrance into the hearts of people that they won't soon forget. Because we do it Jesus' way. We do it with the fruit of the Spirit that Paul taught us about in the letter to the Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We do it Jesus' way. By loving all the people we come into contact with, by having faith in God's promises for us, and by hoping that the promises of God would be fulfilled, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And as disciples of Christ, we need to know how to make an entrance into the lives of the people to whom God sends us. Because we have a responsibility to the people around us to represent our Lord well. And that is the same Lord who, by entering Jerusalem on that very first Palm Sunday, declared war against everything that is wrong on this earth. But, as we'll come to see, the forces of darkness had another plan. And so, we're going to pick up this story on Thursday, from the Last Supper all the way to the cross. And we're going to look upon the tragedy of the cross in order to better understand and praise God for the victory of the resurrection. That's why we come together on Holy Thursday. And if you haven't been to one of our Holy Thursday services, I highly, highly encourage you to do so, either here or online. Please join us because I truly believe that to understand and praise God for the resurrection, we have to look upon the cross because this is our promise as resurrection people. And so let me leave you with these questions. How has Jesus entered your lives? Have you recognized him for who he is? Will you accept him as he is? If so, how will you and how will our community as a whole live it out in this world? Don't be discouraged if you don't know the answers to these questions yet. 
always remember that our spiritual journey, our lives in Christ, is a pilgrimage. And pilgrimage is all about preparation. God is preparing us for the wonderful, amazing, incredible things God has in store so that we can continue the ministry of Christ in this world. So just be who God created you to be. Don't be somebody else. Be who God created you to be and be filled with the spirit of Christ so that people will ask the question, who is this? And find the hope of salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love and your grace in Jesus Christ, which never fails and never ends. We ask right now, Lord, that the gates of our hearts may spring open, that we may accept you as you are, that we would not make the same mistake as that first crowd who in one moment shouted, Hosanna, and in the next shouted, crucify him. I pray, Lord, that it will be all Hosanna for us, that we will... We will cry out the praises of the people, save us now, and that we would accept your love and grace in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. God, I pray for those out in the world who will ask the question, who is this, when they learn of who we are. And I pray, Lord, that we would answer through word and deed in a way that will set their hearts on fire so they would come to know you. Lord, thank you so much. For, this, for walking this path for us, for cooperating with the Spirit inside of you so that we all could live and celebrate what you've done for us during this holy week. And so, Lord, we walk with you. We accompany you to the foot of the cross, and we look upon you because you died for us so that we might live for you. Thank you, God. And we pray these things with gratitude and great expectation. In Jesus' holy name, and all God's people say, amen, amen.